Well, good morning, and good morning to you online. We're glad you're with us as well. We started a new series last week, Rubble to Return, and we talked about how it was that Israel, specifically Judah, found themselves as exiles in a foreign land, living in captivity in Babylon. And the promise of Jeremiah that in 70 years God was going to bring them back out of exile and bring them back into Jerusalem, the holy city, and restore them as the people of God. And so for 70 years, they were lost. For 70 years, they didn't really have a home. And we ended the story with... a. Um, excuse me, a king, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah had followed the ways of um, God in some ways, but for the most part, he was arrogant and he was prideful. And he was basically a vassal king or um, for Nebuchadnezzar. And he was serving him, and things went really well for the first five, six, seven years of his reign as king until he decided that he was going to do his own thing. He was going to build his own army. He was going to stop paying a tribute tax. And Nebuchadnezzar finds out about that. He ends up attacking um, Jerusalem, killing um, so many of the people, including the sons of Zedekiah, and shipping Zedekiah off to be basically a trophy in his trophy case. And Israel is left in rubble. Jerusalem, the temple is torn down, the walls are taken down, the city is burned to the ground, and there is basically nothing left. There is nothing left. And it was almost as if God was trying really hard to get Israel's attention. He was letting them face the consequences of their actions, the consequences of their disobedience. And we talked about how important discipline is. That it's not this retributive action by God. And, and God doesn't bring or doesn't discipline us to pay us back. God disciplines us to bring you back. And it's possible that what you thought was meant to destroy you, God was actually using to save you. That is why Nebuchadnezzar was there. And Jeremiah told Zedekiah, hey, if you will just go to Nebuchadnezzar, if you will just surrender to him, you're going to go peacefully into exile, and in 70 years I'm going to bring you. But if you don't, you and your people are going to suffer. You and many of your people are going to die. And Nebuchadnezzar's reign goes on, and Babylon is in this position of power where they are the great world power. And a new king, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, comes on the scene. And he is much like his father, and they are arrogant, they are prideful in the kingdom that they have built. And then comes a prophet named Daniel. And Daniel comes on the scene and he says to Belshazzar, hey, you know that you were given this authority. You, you did not earn it. You did not get there on your own. It was given to you. 
And it wasn't just given to you by your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Right? In Daniel 5, he says this, The Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and He sets over them anyone He wishes. Belshazzar, you need to understand that this throne was not given to you because your father was king. It was given to you because God decided you would be king. But Daniel also tells him that your father let pride and arrogance get in his way. And all of that was stripped away from him until God decided to bring him back. And now you have seen what your father did, and yet you have followed in his footsteps, and you've allowed pride and arrogance to rip apart your life. You've desecrated the sacred things of God from the temple. You've turned your back on God, the one who gave you this power. And so, Belshazzar, tonight your life is going to be taken from you. And his life comes to an end. And with the end of his life comes the end of the nation of Babylon. And now a new power comes on the scene. And a king named Cyrus from Persia has now taken over so much of this world domination who owns and controls so much. And so now as Cyrus is king, he's going to speak to these exiles who have been ripped out of their city 70 years earlier. And he's going to give them some good news. So in Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. The Lord moved his heart. The the Lord moved him, right? It was God who gave him that power. And so Ezra says, God has moved his heart. And so he writes this letter. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Going on, verse 3. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Verse 4. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide with them silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. It's been 70 years as exiles. 
70 years of waiting. 70 years of hope that one day we're going to get to go home. And now God is using a pagan king to write this proclamation, to declare to them, it's okay that you go home. And anyone, anyone who worships Yahweh, anyone who worships the God of Israel, you're free to come back to Jerusalem and help be a part of building the temple. Could you imagine the anticipation It's been 70 years, and you have been hearing about how great Jerusalem was and how amazing the temple was. If we could only go back to how it used to be. Can you imagine the anticipation when you finally receive word, hey, it's okay, you can go home. Would you be excited? Would you be scared? Would you be uncertain? Right? Life in Babylon was really hard. Life in Babylon was difficult. The psalmist writes about this time. He says, by the waters of Babylon we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they ask, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Like life was hard. They wanted to go home. They longed for home. And now comes the day. They get the green light. You can go back and you can start rebuilding this city. But think about what it was like when they left. When they were left, everything was burned. Everything was torn down. But my guess is, that's not how they remember it. My guess is, that's not what they're imagining going home to. Because we have this tendency to remember the past as better than it was. And they want to go back to how it used to be. And they're now returning home. And they've been telling stories of Zion. They've been telling stories of what life was like in Jerusalem. They've been telling stories of what it was like in the temple, and they're longing for this day. And my guess is they start this return, and it's a bit anticlimactic. They start this journey with all this excitement, and they get there, and it's like, this is it. This is what's left. I was longing for home. And when I got here, all I saw was the rubble. All I saw was this city torn down. 
And it's not at all like we imagined it would be. This past spring, I got the opportunity to go back. Um, we had a reunion, I guess 21 years from um, my senior year of college. And so we went back and we got to um, go on the field and go see the new facilities. And I remember driving up to Arkansas. And as I'm driving along 30, the only thing that's going through my mind is just stories. Whether it messed up kind of the weekend and postponed games, and so my family who was going to go didn't get to go, and so I'm just by myself. And the whole way there, I'm just thinking through stories. I'm remembering things. I'm probably looking really stupid because I'm like laughing uncontrollably at times driving in the car by myself. But I was remembering how good it was. And we got there and we got to see some of my buddies, guys I played ball with 20-something years ago, my coach. And then they started showing us the new facilities. And they took us in the new locker room. I was like, all right, that's, that's pretty cool. And they took us in their indoor facility. And we asked one of the guys who was kind of showing us some place to go, can we see our old locker room? And they said, well, where is it? And we start telling him, he goes, oh, in the dungeon? <laughs> and so they took us in our old, and I, I just took a picture of my locker, um, this one. It's basically a junk room for the pole vaulters and track team. And it literally is probably the size of this stage. But there were a lot of great memories from that day. There were a lot of great memories from those days. And remembering it, thinking about what it was like when I was going back, all I could picture was how things used to be. And I went back to things that were a lot, lot, lot better. A lot better. Israel is going back, and I don't think this is this happy, feel-good, heartwarming reunion. They're going home to destruction. And I think, I think in their head they know that. But I think their heart struggles to come back and realize that they have to do the work to rebuild. Because there's a tension in our life between what our head knows and what our heart wants. Right? There's this tension within inside of us between what our head knows and what our heart wants. And they're going back, having to start this process of rebuilding. And rebuilding is never easy. It's never easy. But going back just because you have permission to go back and start over doesn't mean it's going to be easy, and it doesn't mean it's going to be the same. You, you might say, or they might say, I forgive you, but you have to rebuild that trust. You may say, I am sorry, 
but somewhere along the way you have to start to show it. You may say, I messed up, but you still have the consequences to deal with. Right? You might have permission to start rebuilding, but that doesn't mean you just walk back to the normal that used to be. There is a process and there is work. Just know it will never be the same. As badly as we want it to be like it used to be, it will never be like it used to be. That doesn't mean it will never be better. Just know it will not be the same. It will not be like you remembered. It will not be like you imagined. And so they are given this green light, and this leader, Zerubbabel, is kind of in charge of everything, and he is going to be the leader in this process. And so they've taken this trip, they've gone back home. And so verse 1 of chapter 3, when the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their town. So they've been back for seven months and kind of gotten settled in. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priest, Zerubbabel, son of Shetil, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they build the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and evening sacrifices. So they get settled in, and they all come together in the city of Jerusalem. And the priests and the leaders get together in the middle of the city and they start clearing out this spot. They start clearing away the rubble. And they build an altar in the center of the city. And they start offering sacrifices. The the priests, the leaders say, hey, let's clear out a spot. Let's put an altar here and let's refocus and reorient our mind around God. Because when everything is falling apart, He is the one firm foundation. When everything is falling apart, when everything is crumbling at your feet, He is the one thing we can be certain of. So let's put our focus there at the altar. And so they start to worship. And you can think, well, well, haven't they been doing this as exiles? Haven't they been doing this wherever they were? And I don't know that they had. I don't know if it was a part of their everyday life the way it was in Jerusalem. right? Because think about your life. Those times when you're hurting or you're lonely or you're afraid or you're stuck or you're hurt or depressed. Where does most of your focus go? It's on you. It's on you. And I think it's ironic that both in the good times and the bad times, our tendency 
is to focus on me. Right? And this was one of God's biggest fears for Israel in the first place. Right? As he's taking them into the promised land, as he's building this city and this temple that they worship him in, like one of his biggest fears was that they would forget that it's God who's done this. And he tells them, like, hey, there's going to be a time you're going to move in the city and you're going to start to eat well and you're going to start to build things and you're going to start to have some success. But when that happens, be careful. And so he says this in Deuteronomy 8. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to our ancestors as it is today. They march back into the center of the city and the priests clear away the rubble and they build an altar and they say, right there, there is where our focus is. In the good times, in the bad times, our focus is on God. It is Him who has given us success. It is Him who has given us strength. We cannot forget that. Let's put our focus there. Let's reorient our life. And we need that at times, don't we? We need people to come into our life and clear away the mess. And set an altar there and say, right there, there is where our focus belongs. Right? Because there's this shift in our mind when worship is a part of our life. When, when worship happens around us continually, there is a shift in focus from here to here. There's something powerful that happens when our minds go from me, me, me to God. It is all about You. It is transformative. Not just in our life, but in the lives of people around us. It changes us. It changes others. And so the priests say, hey, we're going to refocus everything about this nation right here. And so they lay this foundation for the temple. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Ashphat, Ashphat that, that name, sorry. Mine's not right there. Okay, with symbols looked their places and praised the Lord as, the, as prescribed by David the king of Israel. Verse 11, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, he is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now listen to this. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. See, I think they weep aloud. I don't think it's tears of joy. I think it's sorrow. Because this new foundation is laid 
And it's not like the old one. It's not like things used to be. Because when they think of the temple, they think of the power of God on display. They think of the priest going in and offering sacrifices and fire coming down and consuming it and all of the people seeing the glory of God. They think of smoke filling the temple and God's presence soaking into everything and every person. And they long, I think they long for that day. They just don't realize that they are the ones that have been called to restore it. They are the ones who have been called to renew it. They are the ones who have been called back to lead the people back to God because He's going to use them. He's going to do something powerful. I think they're weeping because this is not what they imagined it would be like. So they lay this foundation and they start this process. And then in Ezra chapter 4, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, and, and we're not real sure who the enemies are, um, it might be Assyria, it might be some people who were left who didn't go into exile. My guess, it's people from the northern kingdom of Israel. But when the en enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time um, Eshardan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And these names kill you sometimes. Um, but Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us here in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, there's a problem. Do you remember the decree from King Cyrus? Anyone... Anyone who desires, anyone who worships the God of Israel, you are free. You are welcome to come back and be a part. Right? Think about God's original hope for Israel. That they would be His people. That he would, they would represent Him in this world so that the rest of the world would know what God was like through His people. You think about Ezekiel's... Um, vision of this new temple where people from everywhere were, were coming to this river that flowed out of the temple and it brought healing to the nations. And they come back to build and they say, no, 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 no. no. You're not a part of us. You don't belong here. And because of their attitude, because of their exclusivity, 
everything comes to a grinding halt. And for 15 years, nothing else is done. Everything just lays and is left as it was. Until a prophet named Haggai comes along. And Haggai comes along and commands them that it is time to start building the temple. And as Haggai preaches, the people begin the process again. And the temple is rebuilt and is completed. And they celebrate Passover. And it seems like things are starting to go the way of Israel once again. And I got to wondering as I was reading this story, is it possible at times the biggest idol in our life is our memory of days gone by? Is it possible at times that the biggest idol is the way things used to be? Where we hope for, long for, dream about what God has done. But in doing so, it's so easy to miss what He is now doing. Is it possible that God is at work all around you? And giving you opportunities to be His hands and feet in this world that you miss because all you can think about is what it was like long ago. But here's what you need to know about this process of rebuilding trying to rebuild things as they once were. One, it will not happen overnight. They don't get to magically walk into the city that lies in ruin. It was a process. It took them a long time to get there. It took them a long time to get out of there. And it's going to take them a long time to get back what they had. In fact, they never really will. It will never be the same. Secondly, it will not be easy. That process of rebuilding your life is never easy. It's never a simple road. It's hard. Third, things will never look like they once did. That does not mean they won't be better. They just won't be the same. And then maybe the most difficult one, you may never see it fully rebuilt. 
for those priests who are coming back, who are thinking about the old temple, they may never live to see the day that this new temple is rebuilt. They might not get to be a part of it. They may be a part of the process, but they might not ever see how it ends. See, and here, here's the problem when we focus so much of our life on the, fast, on the past, is it limits our ability to see what God is doing here and now. Yes, we worship. Yes, we celebrate what God has done. But we don't long for Him to do what He once did. We long for Him to continue to make all things new. We long for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. Because anything here is short of what it could be. Anything that has been here is not fully what God imagined for this world and for His people. We are longing for, we are building toward that day. And it creates this enormous problem. If we're living in New Jerusalem, constantly thinking about old Jerusalem, was to come and restore all things. God's promise was to come and make all things new. It was never to come and make things like they used to be. Because they can't be. They will never be. And so we need people who will come into our life into the rubble, into the mess, and clear out a spot in the center of our life and plant an altar and say, there's where our focus lies. There's where we orient our lives. This is what gives us direction. It's why this right here at this time every week is so incredibly important because it reorients our life to what matters most. It's not this building. It's the people of God coming together as one in celebration of what God is doing in this world. Yes, what He has done has brought us life, but it is what He is doing now and what He is continuing to do that gives us hope. If we will only open our eyes to see it. Father, we thank You so much for this time. And God, for stories that just sometimes are, are difficult. Stories that we don't spend a lot of time on. But Father, I think stories that as we dig into, we see more and more of ourselves in them. More and more of our lives. Father, no matter where our lives are, at right now. 
would you help us to clear aside all the rubble and put that altar back in the center, that cross back in the center of our life. And that, Father, our life would be oriented around the cross of Jesus. His death, His resurrection that gives us hope and that gives us life. Father, we thank You so much for these stories that still speak to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.